Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 35 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about 1940s The Shop Around the Corner, a movie that takes place at Christmas time for part of it and has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> it was written by Samson Raffelson. Raffelson? Raffelson? Sam Samson Rafelson and was based on the 1937 Hungarian play Parfumery by Miklos Laszlo. It was directed uh, directed by that German touch uh, auteur Ernst Lubitsch, who I didn't really know, but the guy is like like super super famous in 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 early Hollywood cinema. Very prolific, uh, prolific, and but like some like like real bangers, like you know the guy okay. is super well known. So uh, it was released on January twelfth, nineteen forty. A great indication of it being a Christmas movie. Uh, mm. Three weeks after Christmas, uh, <laughs> a budget of five hundred thousand dollars. It made three hundred eighty thousand dollars, and that's all according to very old statistics. So who knows if that is even remotely correct? And a super interesting has a hundred percent rating at Rotten Tomatoes right now, currently. I, I find this all fascinating. All these numbers and all these things, all very fascinating. It's rare to get a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, just people really being is. who they are. And and you and I are a little bit divided on this movie. Not, a, well, and spoilers again, not that it's not... Uh, not that it's a Christmas movie. I think we both agree it is not. But I think I think the overall quality of the movie, I, I think, is going to be... We're going to skip that whole is it a Christmas movie segment on this one. Uh, well, I mean, we have to cover it, but it's going to be super short, y'all. It's going to be super short. All right, but you know what's going to be happening right this second, Mike? Something even shorter. I'm going to read the one-sentence plot line. Hey, Ready? Yep. Two employees at a gift shop can barely stand each other without realizing that they are falling in love through the post as each other's anonymous pen pals. Mm. Does it sound familiar to a more modern movie you may know? It does. It sounds like a little <laughs> movie called You've Got Mail. Shing, shing, bong. Uh, 19, That's your AOL. <laughs> yeah. 1998's Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, rom-com that is also not taking place at Christmas. That's not even trying to pretend to be a Christmas movie. Written by Nora Ephron, who wrote and directed last week's episode... Ah, nice through line there. That is a nice through line there. And guess what? This one's got... What was last Jimmy. week's episode called? What was last week's episode called? Why are you asking me that? It's called Mixed Nuts. Well, maybe people haven't heard it. How so they're like, oh, let's go back. You? Let's go back and listen. <laughs> I sit you right up there. I was like, which was called? And you're like, well, I'm not going <gasps> to hear that. I was just moving on to Jimmy Stewart because I know you are waiting to do your impression and I'm waiting to hear it. So I was just ready to hear it. <laughs> I apologize. No, it's, it's okay. It's a, listen, <laughs> I you know, the lines in here aren't nearly as bombastic as uh, It's a Wonderful Life. So mm. even watching this movie, I was still doing a lot of Mary, Mary, I'll, I'll throw a lass around the moon for you, Mary. Oh you know, like, God. even, even although, with Although that. Clara, you could probably come off with the Mary kind of sound. Uh, oh, oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, Clara, I'm, to I'm you. Gonna, <laughs> uh, uh, Clara, I'm going to, I'm going to send you a letter to, to, to dear friend, uh, Box 237, Clara. Uh, oh my go, God. go get my letter, Clara. I love you. I love this. I love this. Okay. So here's the deal though. I need you to tell our listeners the backstory on Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy James Stewart, because really that is what got my heart like faster than this movie did. 
So I was watching this movie and I obviously I know James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart. Uh, you know, this is still pretty early in his career. He had made uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, you can't take it with you. Uh, those had come out in like the 30s. This is still pretty early in his like Hollywood career, though. What I didn't know, because I was taken by, for me anyway, what I thought was like really electric chemistry between Jimmy and Margaret Sullivan on screen. So I went looking to see what their deal was. And it turns out they had a deal. They had come up together uh, acting in the Northeast in, in, you know, summer stock shows and in New England, I think maybe Boston. And then they had been on Broadway together. So they were both theater kids who had come up and she makes it, she makes it in Hollywood first. They're such good friends uh, and they're actually uh, she's married to Henry Fonda, who is also one of Jimmy Stewart's best friends. So there's another through line connection to the two of them. She brings Jimmy essentially along with her to Hollywood, knows that he has everything needed to become famous. It, she she gets him in, in front of the right people. She polishes him up, tells him kind of how to dress and how to act and and just how to bank the things that will make him this, you know, icon for generations to come. Uh, you know, remember, this is still five years before It's a Wonderful Life will come out before Frank, you know, gets him for a third time for It's a Wonderful Life. But it's a story of also like unrequited love. You know, he's in love with her. He was admittedly in love with her when she was married to his best friend, Henry Fonda. And then she divorces Henry Fonda. She goes on to marry like three more times. None of them are Jimmy Stewart. They, they're just kind of ships that are just always you know crossing in the night like passing in the night and never really get there but they have this tremendous friendship that lasts sadly she actually passes away from a barbiturate overdose in 1950 i believe it's a very like abbreviated life and his wife at the time and i'm from blanking on her name she had a quote that said he was a broken man after uh, jimmy stewart was a was essentially a broken man after Margaret passed away. And then she says it wasn't because his movie started to fall off or his fame started to dim. It was because she was gone. Now, this is his wife saying that about this woman, this other woman in his life. That was that was how deep and long their friendship went together. You know, it a little bit reminds me of Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy in that, like, they married other people. They have other relationships, but on screen, they have such great chemistry. You can almost swear that they should be married and they should be together in a romantic relationship. And they they play off of each other so well and they 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 go into many projects together and you just kind of start like, you know, expecting them to be get together. Like, couldn't you see Eugene Levy's like wife putting out something like if Catherine O'Hara died and was like, he's just like not the same after she's like not around. A hundred percent. And a hundred percent. Yeah, no, uh, totally. I, I, they're the kind of relationship that you look at and you are more shocked that they haven't been married or they haven't been together. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of wild. And for me, I saw a lot of that here. So they end up doing, she only made, Makes like 16 movies and i was wrong she didn't pass away in 1950 she passed away on january 1st 1960 from a barbiturate overdose um but still you know too young of a life like 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 so many people in hollywood at that time lived too too little but she only makes 16 movies she actually ends up going back to theater um and four of those movies were made with jimmy stewart this is the final one though they were actually in two movies together in 1940 uh this one and another one earlier in the year called no Another one later in the year called The Mortal Storm. That is their final movie together on screen. Um, yeah, I mean, well, what was their? Did you see this chemistry? Because I you okay you, there. You okay? Let me ask you. Holy uh, did did you see the chemistry on screen? Because I sent you that article, and I was like, take a look at this. I felt like my heart was so full after I read the article. So I, a little bit, maybe I unfairly came into this with big expectations. So I would say that I saw it from Jimmy to Margaret. I saw the sparks. Like I could see that happening. In my opinion, I saw it less from Margaret to Jimmy. Now, okay. So I just didn't think that Margaret Sullivan popped off the screen for me in the same way as our leading lady 
ladies like Maureen O'Hara in 30 in Miracle on 34th Street or Barbara Sandwick in Christmas in Connecticut. Like those two women were so commanding and so like just like solid in who they were. Um, and, 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 po- and possibly it's actually like their supposed personalities in their characters. But those two women just like they just jumped off the screen. Even Donna Reed in It's a Wonderful Life. Like she had like a whole dynamic with him that was so playful and and so like real that for me I just didn't I just didn't love Margaret Sullivan the way that I feel like I could have or should have now I'm curious though if it is Margaret Sullivan or if it really is though the character of Clara Novak though because and again I'm really comparing this to uh, unfairly comparing this to the future because the Meg Ryan Tom Hanks dynamic of he's Joe Fox and I don't remember her character's name and you've got mail but she is also aggressively mean to him in that movie he he is playfully mean to her because he's the one who has the big company and is crushing her. And so he doesn't really have a lot to worry about. She she quite feels like she's losing everything that, you know, her and her parents or mother had like worked for. And, and so she is she is aggressively nasty to him. But I see that also in this uh, this movie, though, too. Clara is aggressively mean to Alfred and he is not nearly as mean to her as she is to him. And and it's and I ca- I did ask myself a couple times why is that. So I'm wondering if if that lack of personality is really more of the Clara character than the Margaret Sullivan character. I mean, maybe it doesn't make a difference. I mean, we're not here. We're not doing a bio on Margaret <laughs> Sullivan, you know. But. Well, it a little bit makes a difference because you're right. I mean, I think that there's some actresses who can take any script and shine. Like, and, and then there's other ones where the character is so well written that you almost can't mess it up because the, they're so well developed and they're and they just have such great lines that it's really hard to mess them up maybe it's some combination that like i really enjoy biting wit i don't really love biting meanness i don't like it when you have to find the funny in the mean i prefer it when it's funny but it has a little bite to it does that make sense it it, it, it yeah it does there's too too mean for me like she's too like universally mean i wish she had more i really did think that the like the back and forth about her blouse and all the way that she was defending herself some of them were just plain mean and then there was a couple of lines that were pretty funny and i wish she had more of the funny for me because i think that that's where you really get the intelligence of a character when they can go funny i don't think you have to be smart at all to go mean Yes, you don't have to go mean to show that you're funny. I I enjoyed it. Um, I I think she was aggressively and unnecessarily aggressively mean to him, or without without fully explaining why. Like I said, like and you've got mail. It's it's understandable why she's going at Tom Hanks's character because his business is running her business out of the ground. Here they work together. He's her boss, but he's not really mean to her other than she takes it maybe personally that he shoots down her ideas but his job is to say what he thinks and you know on the like the music boxes i you know i'm impressed that was really clever thinking on her feet to turn it around as a candy warning which worked for that one woman but then the next scene you see that they've got two dozen uh, of them now on clearance selling at 50 percent off so he was (laughs) right he was ultimately right about it. it is a horrible idea i would go insane if i heard that song a bunch of times a day but it was especially clever. if it was something that you liked and you wanted to to right. use like often. Yes, I understood their whole the whole reasoning of like, do you really want to hear the start of that song like every time? You know, it's right. kind of like for all of us, it's like when you put in a certain ringtone, maybe it's for your alarm or whatever. Now you just like lunge for the phone when you just even hear the first two notes of the song, you know, because yes. you just can't stand to hear it anymore. So yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think that that small portion where we actually got to see her as a saleswoman, I think. She came off very charming. Obviously, she was quick on her feet. She was able to find someone's, you know, weakness and exploit it, basically. Again, though, that doesn't necessarily make you funny or or cool or a girl I'd like to hang out with. But it does make you uh, someone who can manipulate others. There's another big star in here, and and coming off of a movie he was in the year before, yes. a pretty big star, really. I think for as the time. As soon as I saw him, I like squealed. <laughs> 
What did you think of Frank Morgan? Uh, you guys may know him as the wizard, from, the titular wizard of Oz. He yes. is playing uh, Hugo Matishik, the uh, the proprietor of Matishik and Company's uh, store here. What did you think of uh, Frank here? Starts at, he has a he has a whole arc in this movie. He does. I loved him. I thought that there was like some small little moments where they obviously were making little homages to Wizard of Oz. Um, I wrote down that the Balm and Company uh, as as a as a competing store, and I thought that was funny. A little L. Frank Baum uh, reference there from Wizard of Oz. Love that. And then what was that? And there was another one where he kind of acts like he's telling the a fortune or the future in some way. It was very back to the psychic that he plays um, when he meets Dorothy. He calls Kralik a mind reader, yes. right? Because he and over- that's what he is, yeah. right? He's a mind reader in that one. So I just thought that those were like funny little things, and I'm sure the audience would like chortle to themselves because it was only just you know the year before. Yes. I mean, these guys are all kind of at their height. You know, Margaret Sullivan, I don't actually I don't know how famous she ultimately was. Obviously, Jimmy Stewart eclipses her fame. I I think he he ends up eclipsing most people's fame. But, you know, he's in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington the year before. Uh, You know, Frank Morgan is in Wizard of Oz the year before. The three of them are actually going to be in the mortal storm later this year frank morgan's actually in that movie along with margaret sullivan and jimmy stewart so these guys are all teaming up again for another movie coming out this year um, in 1940 so they were all busy these guys were working these guys uh, this men, uh, gents and lady were all working <laughs> uh did any of the other characters pop out to you i mean we have peppy we have vadish we have the two other women that work at a shop who don't really have any personalities and uh we've got uh Pirovich. I like Pirovich. Like, so he was, he, I kept looking back in IMDb to be like, do I know him from somewhere or is he just that endearing? For me, he was just that endearing. I, I didn't recognize any of the rest of his work. And it was just somebody who I was like, you are somebody who I want to be my friend. I want to hang out with you. I want to have a beer with you. You have my back. You're just, you're just cool all the way around. So he was the one of anyone there that I, I would love to work with. How about you? Who popped for you? Oh, so so I also loved uh, Pirovich. He was played by uh, the guy's name is Felix Bressert. I had the same reaction as you. I said, I know this guy from somewhere. I feel like I know this guy from somewhere. I looked at his IMDb. I didn't recognize anything. Though in, in doing that, though, I actually found Hollywood's such a small town. So Ernst Lubitsch is a German-born filmmaker who comes to America and, and hits it big here. Felix Bressert had his first career in Germany. He was a he was a, a comedian, essentially a vaudevillian comedian in Germany. Comes to America and and gets into a bunch of films at with the help of people like Ernst Lubitsch, who cast him in movies like this. And so he ends up actually having a pretty robust career doing this kind of comedy shtick and very very cute, very adorable, a great you know co conspirator and great friend to, to Kralik and. I love the character. I loved it a lot. I kept thinking, though, I know this guy. And I was reading about him. Some article said that he was a cross of Groucho Marx and Albert Einstein. I definitely see the Marx part portion 100%. It was like lightning struck me. I was like, yeah, if those two had a baby, it would be Felix Presser for sure. (laughs) And that's so funny because I think after I see Frank Morgan, then when they showed us Vadas, I was like, I kept thinking... He looks so much like the actor who played the Scarecrow when he's not being the Scarecrow. Um, and like the wavy blonde hair and stuff that he has. I don't know. I kept looking. He's not. But it just I kept like really searching out each actor's face, trying to be like, do I know you from something else? And everyone looked vaguely familiar, but it was like of a time. You know, it's like everyone looked like a certain look of that time. I think so. I think that I think you've hit it on the head. It's it's there was only a couple of different looks. It, it was kind of like an old school video game. You know, like people play video games now. You get to customize your character a thousand different ways. It used to be it was like brown hair, blonde hair, black hair. You yes. know, long face, skinny face, the round face. Do you face. part in the middle or do you part? On right. the side? Oh, especially for men. It, is your hat a boat hat or is it a top hat? Or do you or do you wear a, 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 a beret? <laughs> Beret. Uh, so, so Joseph uh, Joseph Schildkraut, who plays Vadish, 
he's only six years younger than Frank Morgan, which is kind of wild oh when you see goodness. that, right? And he's yeah, just no, brown, I didn't see that at all. <laughs> brown nose and worm. Obviously, Mrs. Matishik didn't mind uh, the age difference either, but uh, uh, no, not at all. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, I got to start. I, I should have said this at the very top. Margaret Sullivan spells her name wrong. And, uh, my computer <laughs> has not enjoyed it the last few days. She spells it with an A instead of an I at the end there, and it's been really annoying my computer. But guys, if you're going to go look her up, it's S-U-L-L-A-V-A-N. Why? Who knows? Because she had to make a name for herself in Hollywood, I guess, and spelling her name wrongly was the way she did it. I just wanted to get that out of the place. (laughs) What do you think about the Budapest hungry setting for this movie? That's kind of wild. Very unexpected. And honestly, had they not said it one time at the very beginning and then had the currency not been Hungarian, there's nothing about it that spoke to it being anything outside of the United States. So I I didn't see that at all. Nobody really had an accent for the most part. I mean, there was a little accent here or there, but not that much. And so, yeah, I was quite surprised. Uh, same. And there's really no reason for it. You know what? It actually really reminded me a little bit of Casablanca uh, or Casa- yes. Cas- Casablanca, Casablanca, where everyone's kind of like, you know, an American in Tunisia. Why? I don't know. But because they no, are. No, because they're passing through because of the war. So, I mean, there's that portion. There is something really interesting, though, because this movie takes place in 1939, 1940, when it comes out. Hitler's come to power. World War II has officially kind of begun already, right? I mean, Poland's already been taken over. There's no mention of any of that in this movie. There is no time climate of the times at all in this movie right which is kind of crazy because that movie i've mentioned now a couple times that comes out in this year the mortal storm is explicitly about the rise of the nazi threat that movie takes place right when hitler comes to power it takes it's set in the early 1930s and jimmy stewart plays an anti-nazi uh and margaret sullivan is a woman who has uh engaged to a man falls out of love with him and breaks off their engagement when she realizes he's a nazi sympathizer falls in love with the anti-nazi jimmy stewart and it's about the the coming third reich it's just kind of wild these guys did this idyllic nothing is wrong the world is fine uh, hungry budapest is a lovely place setting and in the same year also did this the world is about to be on fire for the next 15 years kind of movie crazy i I know it was just it just kind of struck me that they both came out in the same year and they both take such wildly different tacks on world war ii which at this time all these movies i mean jimmy stewart famously stops acting because he goes off to the and join the air force uh you know world war ii plays a huge role in hollywood in this time but not in this movie no hint of it why is it in hungary i think it's an homage to the play that it's based on uh miklos laszlo's parfumery because that is set in hungary but also i read ernst lubisch his father ran a tailoring a leather goods tailoring shop in Germany, where he was born and raised and spent all of his time in, in his childhood. And so setting it in a European city or like an Eastern European city felt natural to him more so than setting it somewhere in America, both as an homage to the play that it's based on and because of his childhood and his comfort with that setting. That's why we're in Budapest. You know, I think the thing that stood out to me the most in terms of the time, oh, I want to call it like the romance, the quaintness, the something of this movie genre is the red carnation the meeting up that's actually something that comes up in um gilmore girls like they haven't seen each other in a while and so they each wear like a red carnation to make sure they like know who each other are when they meet at the mall um which is of course hilarious because they're mother and daughter but but that little thing i think has like stood the test of like movie time if you will and people still do that and i think that that little moments like that stuck out to me sort of more as like getting me in the mood or the tone than say like the setting this movie's guts are everywhere in hollywood when you see when you watch this movie and then you think about movies that have come after it a lot of stuff is because of this movie like the red carnation i mean Yes, Gilmore Girls, but also again, you've got mail. That 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 whole scene where Tom Hanks find realizes Meg Ryan is the woman that he's been emailing with. He comes and messes with her in the cafe, and she's got the she's got you know the, I think it's Anna Karenina also in You've Got Mail and the bookmark and the carnation. Uh, and so he comes and messes with her in the same kind of way as Jimmy Stewart does here with Margaret Sullivan. 
and and the scenes kind of play out very very similarly like she's you're gonna ruin my this guy's gonna come and he's gonna say fooey because he's gonna see me talking to you and it, yeah it's just very i mean it's it's pulled whole cloth from this what they do when you've got mail for that scene but I, that idea that trope the the secret admirer you know like mm. that whole thing of getting flowers and it just being like ooh, who could it be from like all that whole thing is so romantic you know that's like that is the genre it's also a will they won't they i mean you and i were talking off uh off mic before we started to record about chemistry and 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 her meanness and for me and her meanness and i think because i think i felt it because it was one of those situations where the passion is running so hot that the line between are they gonna you know is she gonna slap him or is she going to kiss him is extremely thin the the there is likely to embrace romantically as they are to fist fight is palpable every time they're on screen and when you know that they have this strangers it's like banter in ted lasso right where they get to know each other anonymously playing in the background it only heightens what you're seeing them interact and that that antagonistic heated passionate kind of uh, affair when they're in front of each other i don't know it all worked really well for me it all fed the fire i i was i was totally uh, hook line and sinker in, in that in that relationship and i like that you know i was a big fan of moonlighting i yes i love the slapstick and the jokes of moonlighting but well you know whether david and maddie were gonna fist fight or kiss was always a big thing for you know nine-year-old mike i was into it i was you know let's go <laughs> nine-year-old you're, well, you're like the funniest kid Civil shepherd oh, she was a, she was a hottie patati and you know i was no, a big, for sure. i saw myself in bruce willis i was like i'm gonna be oh, that guy but hopefully with a better hairline but man <laughs> I, I i had his i had his harmonica play and blues album you know oh, i wow. had i had uh under the boardwalk on 45 come on <laughs> get out of here you know you are just like try- grooming yourself into uh, like casanova huh from little 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 take mike uh, that's I, I had to do something i had, I had to do something i had a lot of, a lot of uh, eight balls in front of me yeah so i love the will they won't they and it works really well for me here and again i think you i think that dna has just spread uh, through hollywood over the years Okay, do we want to talk about the fundamental plot line of the fact that he knows throughout the majority of the movie that she is the one he is writing to, but she doesn't know that it's him? Uh, Yeah, I think we have to because I think in 2021 especially – but even 1998 with You've Got Mail, I find this storyline problematic. What's your take on it? Okay, so I think it just would have been more fun to keep them both – guessing for a lot longer i felt like there wasn't a huge need especially once pirovich knew that that it was both of them and he knew who each of them were it seemed like why spoil that why have to know why should he know that it's her because it it does unfortunately set her up to look like even a bigger jerk because once he knows it's her and then he will soften at times and kind of try to be a little bit more, oh, I don't know, coy or a little silly with her. And she doesn't bite on any of those things. It really, to me, it gets like grating that it's like I would I just would have rather neither of them know and continue to act as they act and write as they write and have that contrast and have it out of both of them the other thing that i thought was a little bit odd is we got very little letters like we only had one or two lines from different letters to like give us an idea of what this romantic written relationship was like i feel like and you've got mail and i could be totally wrong because i haven't seen it in a long time i feel like there was more content given of what was in the letters yes i think they did a lot of voiceover montage stuff with them me too anyway yeah there's this there's a lot of where she's written like laying in bed and like her fiance has like fallen asleep next to her and she opens up her computer and she's like reading the emails like mumbling them to herself do you agree that there's like you're really missing the fire between them you're really missing we we get all the kind of snottiness between them and the workplace kind of angst but we get such little perspective of like what is this romantic 
like personality, most especially of his, because I think for most women, like that's the thing that's lacking. We could kind of get what she might be writing back to him, but, but for him to be like, you know, making her swoon so hard, like I'm ever so curious what this man is writing. Hey, well, uh, uh, he, he took that from Victor Hugo. Uh, he didn't even come up with that. He, he just changed the words and, you know, he played himself up a little bit. Uh, uh, very successful. He's not though. He's, he just lost his job. He did. Oh, oh. yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I agree with you. I wish there were more letters because when he's reading to Pirovich that first letter, you know, I was like, oh, I get it. Like, you know, I, I, you know, I reached inside and your letter laid with, you know, laid there waiting for me to read it. And I opened it. It was extremely, it, it was, it was, I almost felt a little embarrassed listening to it. You know, Ooh. it was so private. Uh, yeah. And he said, sit it with Pirovich, you know, Pirovich, you know, I'm sure got all worked up about it whatever yeah so and then they have the weird time jump right there's a six month time jump and now he's like fully in love when you come out of the time jump and that's when he loses his job and so he can't go meet her i you definitely get why he's into the lady before he realizes who it is and so it really does tell it from his point of view because you're right he does soften to her he he's never terribly antagonistic to her before that point and he is much less so afterwards in a in a professional setting she doesn't mm-hmm. know and so she is a bit played like a fool i remember watching this when i watched you've got mail and you know tom hanks is very likable and in it's hard to not like him even when he's being a little stinker and and i think him and make ryan have fantastic chemistry but i remember thinking it's a little it felt like, like a little misogynistic because it, there's no way to avoid her looking like a fool it's embarrassing you're embarrassed on behalf of her and i'm embarrassed on behalf of clara in this movie because she doesn't know so she's always kind of feeling like the butt of a joke that she doesn't even know she's the butt of a joke of and i don't really like that pirovich was so adorable in his like little middleman role and his little conniving role right we see him playing both of them and kind of manipulating like he does the thing with the music box and into the wallet i agree with you in in a classic caroline and mike rewrite of this movie i think that works I think they do it this way because you have to see the change in him move into wooing mode, right? Because there would have been no softening. There would have been no detente. And, you know, eventually he's going to lose his cool with her being so nasty to him, to his face. And so I think he has to know in order to soften uh, from his side that so that she can begin to see him actually as a decent human because she's so built up i think in her idea of who he is without knowing him at all she has to start seeing a softer side of him that's so clear that she has to begin to rethink her own preconceived notions does that make sense yeah it does do you feel like in a real situation and we've seen this play out actually in a much more modern situation with ted lasso this is a spoiler alert so if you haven't seen season two of ted lasso uh, you might want to not listen for the next like ten seconds. Hit the button. But you should go listen. You should go listen to our "Love It or Leave It" for Ted Lasso season two, which will have been published probably about a month uh, before you hear this. So there's two characters in that who don't know that they are texting with one another, and the and you don't know for a long time, and you're only really watching it as the audience really pretty evenly of the two of them not knowing who each other are so that nobody actually plays the other for a fool. They figure it out together at the same time. I like that version. That feels like a 2021 version of the same secret admirer falling in love with the written word and then having to deal with the repercussions of who the person actually is in real life. So for me, I would almost want to compare you got male less and more to the Ted Lasso season two storyline and say, okay, that feels 2021 to me. And that feels like where this storyline easily goes into. Now, this movie is ranked so high, Mike. I mean, so high. I mean, it is ranked number 28 on AFI's best of 100 years. 100 years, 100 passions. 
specifically. I find that fascinating. And I, I really think that it is much more in the real life love affair of these two people. And I don't even mean like they acted out on it, but I just mean like their chemistry more than these two characters they're playing. I hope that that makes sense. It's like when you see maybe Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks on stage or something together or in a movie together and you're like, I get their marriage. I understand their relationship or oh gosh, even like a Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell, right? Like when you see them play together, like on Overboard, you get their real life chemistry there that really helps the characters to make us feel like they're really into it. Um, but there is, there definitely is Jimmy himself. I cannot tell you how much I feel it from him. His eyes are like radiating it. And, and I know in our fast facts, we have this, this line in here, the one day it took him 48 takes to get a scene, right? I love that. There's something about her that gets to him like so hardcore but i don't know that she feels the same way not at that level you know so the full the full story says even jimmy stewart jimmy stewart could get flustered working with margaret sullivan so one day it took him 48 takes to get a scene right stewart said we were in this little restaurant and i had the line i will come out on the street and i will roll up my trousers to my knees and for some reason i couldn't say it she was furious she said this is absolutely ridiculous there i was standing with my trousers rolled up to my knees very conscious of my skinny legs and i said i don't want to act today get a fellow with decent legs and just show them margaret said then i absolutely refused to do the picture (laughs) so we did more takes she was his ride and die they had each other's backs i mean i i could see why she's getting so flustered it's 48 takes but the the second the second that he threatens to just go i i I can't act today go get someone with better legs than me margaret you know she's like no no then no then i will leave i will not do this film if you're not here i love that (laughs) come on so so here's the thing and and i hear you about uh, being a little baffled by why this is ranked so highly like you know number 28 i'm not trying to be a jerk about it i just think it's not the movie i think it's these two real people who sell it for me here's my take on it i think this movie serves as a bankable blueprint for the rom-com model for the next 80 years that's total fact i agree with you there that's why it ranks so high it's it's the same reason star wars has remained resonant because at some point and star wars actually is not even a great oh you better go slow go slow you gotta have people turning off this podcast Uh, so star wars isn't even a great the idea being that at some point someone had to be the first to do it and this movie this the shop around the corner is the first to present this kind of will they won't they misinformation rom-com model this this movie could come out today and would pass muster with a large amount of crowd because of the rom-com blueprint that it serves up that has been played with and toyed with and and a thousand versions have have been made since 1940 that's why i think it ranks so high lots of movies that copy star wars may technically look better technology has gotten better but Star Wars always will rank higher than them because Star Wars did it first. And now Star Wars didn't really do it first. You know, Kurosawa did it first. A lot of Westerns did it first. But in the sci-fi genre with special effects telling that story, Star Wars did it first. And and that's why it will continue to rank so high, even if it maybe hasn't aged well effects-wise. I think movies from this time, a lot of them get ranked highly Citizen Kane, the first to do so many things that have been then copied over and over and over again. It's a Wonderful Life. Again, not the best Christmas movie. We've ranked a lot of movies, I believe, above it, but it was the first to do a lot of the things that classic Christmas movies would try and emulate for the next 80 years. And I think that's why it gets ranked so high. It's the blueprint. It's the blueprint for this kind of movie. I 100% give you that. I can see this exact scenario play out in a thousand different scripts. So 100% yes. I think it's interesting in that quote you read talking about how she was furious. One thing I, I picked up reading about these two and getting ready for this is Margaret Sullivan had a reputation for being extremely quick to temper and a bit uh-huh. difficult to work with. 
Okay. That, and that Jimmy Stewart was one of the uh, uh, savages that could soothe the beast kind of thing. Like, he knew how to work with her, and there were some directors that knew how to work with her. But overall, she definitely had a reputation for being prickly and, and hard okay, to work see, with. see? I'm vibing off of all that. I'm, I'm getting all that. Without knowing that, I'm getting that. Again, so that when I said she's not a chick I feel like I would want to hang out with and, like, have a drink with. Like, she seems like she has those stink lines coming off of her. So cool that Jimmy like absolutely dug that and could and could be one of those ones to make her, you know, feel great. That's awesome. I get it. But I want to fall in love with her too. And I can't fall in love with her. I will come out on the street, Margaret. I will come out on the street. I will roll my trousers up to my knees. Okay, that was a really adorable little scene, though, because, you know, most of the time women are the ones being so, I mean, 99.9% of the time, we're the ones being objectified and most especially like showing a little leg who, it's never a man who shows a little leg. So when she asks to see his legs and he actually pulls up his pant legs and shows these little I thought that was scandalous for 1940. It it, it felt skin. Didn't it feel like when you said it felt embarrassing, like you felt blushing, like I shouldn't see his calves, <laughs> like, which is just hilarious, but it felt that felt very intrusive, right? All the talk about him being bow legged or not, all yeah. of that. It was like, this is extremely personal. But again, <laughs> yes. but I mean, but I think it felt, I felt like I was intruding up. I felt indecent intruding on them because I felt the heat between them. It was like two mm. lovers having this conversation in the middle of a fight, like the kind of lovers that we all know they argue more, not unlike Gracie and Felix from mixed nuts these oh two they, you're comparing them well i'm just saying <laughs> wow. they're the kind of couple that argues as much as they cuddle you know okay. and and they're just ruled by their passions constantly i think very much so alfred is going to spend the rest of his life with clara you know i'm sorry clara stop me all don't throw the cigar box at me clara you know i think that's going to be a lot of his life because i think that's just how she kind of rolls Ouch, man but mm. uh, you know that's a thing i guess different strokes <laughs> for different folks you know? see okay and that's where that maybe the passionate portion comes in right cuz passionate doesn't have to necessarily be this loving caring sensitive relationship right it just has to be like extreme you know and so you get like the highs and the lows and so i guess i get the 100 years 100 passions ranking maybe that's what that's what it's hitting that that extreme nature i think the only other character we haven't really hit upon and i think it ties into the suicide plot line which was unexpected and a super yeah. dark turn this is yeah. like a, a cute little rom-com movie and i'm like what i mean he's wrestling a gun that ends up firing we have to talk about peppy yeah 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 peppy okay. is well, your kind of not peppy, the one i thought you were going to point well, out so. well peppy is your well peppy is your kind of sass mouth though and oh god yeah. when he calls the mrs m and says the whole thing about the perfume i was dying i mean he was so sassy and and then like calling over to the employment agency and everything i mean really funny i thought he was very funny and he saves his boss he saves Madishek. He, he did and yeah. then extorts him for a job promotion in the yeah. hospital that's yeah. ballsy and i appreciate that that's the most fun kind of character right we're yeah. like yeah they are like manipulative and stuff but they're like funny at the same time you mm-hmm. have this like funny part that's what i want out of all these 1930s 40s movies i want that sharp clever funny a little edgy a little sexy uh, i want all that in those characters that's what I'm here for in those movies. Kids, uh, the word is moxie. That's what ah, that's okay. what he has. He's got moxie. He does. And I, I love all of that. I, I want your name to be like Piper and I want you to have a lot of moxie. I think we got to get right now to the, is this a Christmas movie? Uh, Caroline, is <laughs> the shop around the corner 1940 masterpiece by Ernst Lubitsch starring uh, Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan and Frank Morgan? Is this a Christmas movie? No, no, it is no, not. It is not. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't have any of the things that we look for, like any of the things. I realized if this was like, um, you know, I, I can't even remember how we sing the like, let's do a rewrite. But if we were going to do a rewrite, 
it, there needed to be some angst about Christmas Eve and and maybe about to lose the store. Mm. Maybe something was going to happen and they and they had to bring it together and it was going to be Clara and Alfred's salesmanship that was going to save the store from having to go bankrupt, right? Like that's what you needed. You needed there to need to be a miracle in order for it to matter that it was Christmas because you could bring in the shopping and the miracle and the magic and the Pulling it all together out of love and all this stuff for your friends and all like you could pull it together, but there was no actual conflict. There was no. nothing that had to be fixed in order for the movie to turn out okay. Yeah, it was a successful store that remained being very successful on Christmas Eve. Yeah. They made more money for the guy who was already pretty rich. Yeah. I mean, all right, <laughs> great. I mean, there's no there's no magic. There's no family. There's really no family theme here. I mean, the closest you get to the family theme kind of plays a little sketchy between Matashek and the new stock boy, the 17-year-old strapping lad. Like, that whole thing plays out a little weird. I'm not crazy about that. And, and that's Even like- that was an opportunity, though, right? Where, like, the, the sales team could have come together and had a party together to celebrate Christmas Eve, some sort of Charlie Brown, we'll all get together, everybody will bring something and we'll have like a get together because no one really has any place to be. Right? I mean, couldn't you see that happening when they realize that Mr. M doesn't have anywhere to go? But totally no. They're like, yeah, we all have plans. I think he maybe, Mr. Matishik maybe has the most Christmassy moment that he finally appreciates the shop for what it is that it is his family it is his life it wasn't but i don't know there was no there was no build up to that there was no payoff for that kind of thing you know that little moment outside i thought it was actually gonna play out so different and then it didn't when he's asking like i can't see the cost of that briefcase Mm. and the lady's like it's 24 50 or whatever and he's like how can they sell it for so cheap and they're like if you don't know (laughs) mr who would know and i was like wow that played out totally differently than i thought like like it, it you you couldn't even play like the Ebenezer Scrooge ghost in his own life. Like, like I thought it could go that way, but then it didn't because everyone knew who he was. And so it didn't matter. You know, exactly. he, get, he didn't get to be anonymous in his own space. So so I think, I mean, story wise, it's a great bookend to the beginning where he doesn't know as well as alfred does as as kralik does jimmy stewart's character jimmy stewart's character does know the business better he is right on the cigar boxes and mr manischuk takes a year to decide about whether or not to sell something you know and and mr kralik can make a decision in minutes yeah, that's that's like a whole bookend thing like he's not you know savvy he's not uh he's not a super spy you know he's just a guy who has established a, a, a great business and has good really good employees working for him but obviously like yeah, I, I, I that made me laugh, like, you know, that he can't even hide in front of his own store. Uh-uh. I, I read someone trying to make the point that them putting, you know, let's go to work for Mr. Matishuk and make him a lot of money here on Christmas Eve and have a record night as a present for him as the best present we can give him for Christmas. Someone and, and then doing so, someone tried to say that that was a, that's what made it a Christmas movie because it was analogous to Scrooge's about face and that realizing that material things aren't the real point of it all, that having family and loved ones and living a kind, giving, you know, good life is really what it's all about. The things that Scrooge learns from his visits with the fates uh, and that and that Mattishek has a similar realization at the end of this and maybe he does but man they don't really play that up they don't really sell it and he's not the main character so what does it even matter like the 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 third build character has a come to jesus moment that's not selling me on the magic of christmas this movie could take place literally at any time of the year and for half of the movie or for a third of the movie does take place in the summertime so i mean yes yeah i mean i i appreciate it for the things that it's trying to do and it's trying to explain about even like friendships turning into love or or the way that um you know i was kind of getting the whole philip vibe from mixed nuts of like you're really great over the phone but you're terrible in person you're getting that same vibe of like you're really great in writing but then when we're standing in front of each other it's like a lot harder to see each other's charm i guess there's a lot here in all of that just none of it revolves around christmas for me so so i think we can put that one to bed it is not a christmas it's not a christmas movie nope and and you know what 
good for you guys because you get to watch it any time of the year. You don't have yeah, to wait to Christmas go. to go watch this. You could throw this on. You can, it and, could be. You really shouldn't wait till Christmas, in my opinion. Like, there's there's no, no need. Go maybe do... watch this for Valentine's Day. I'm sure Budapest has. I'm sure Hungary has like a National Hungary Day. Go watch it on that day. You know. I, I think I think like a Valentine's Day or something like that, where you're thinking about love and uh-huh. you're thinking about that kind of thing. I think that that works completely. This is an excellent Valentine's Day movie, and you know what? Next February, when we're doing podcasts for Valentine's Day, I may even recommend this one at that Ooh, point. Okay, I like it's, that. It's the blueprint. I I I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I, that's how I see it. So, uh, you want to hit me with some fast facts before we move on to Jingle Bell ratings? I absolutely do. Well, to your point, it is included on the American Film Institute's 2002 list of top 100 greatest love story movies. So there you go. There's your like stamp of approval. In 1999, it was selected for preservation in the United States' National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. It was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Well, maybe this speaks to its everyday nature of this film in terms of like you don't have to be uh, like anyone other than just an ordinary guy or girl to find love. Um, In this film, it was actually stripped of all the glamour that's usually associated with the director's films here with Ernst, if you will. And he went to such great lengths as ordering a dress that Margaret Sullivan's going to wear off the rack for $1.98 and then left it in the sun to bleach. And then they even altered it to fit poorly on her. I like that little message that like, you know, this isn't anything about, they've really kind of hammered that home in this. If you, if you like listened carefully to all of their little back and forth, it's like nobody wanted the most attractive woman in the room. Nobody wanted the like best guy. Everybody just wanted like an average lovable partner <laughs> like that's it that pyramage is you know trying to say you know you, you don't want her to look you know super pretty he's like no i, I just need her to be just you know a good girl just average looking basically yeah yeah i mean I, I i i i i i i'm not the best looking kind of guy and you know i think he just doesn't want the competition you know if she's too hot I, well that, that competition and pressure right that like sure. how could i how could i possibly be enough i can't compete with him have you seen henry fonda my lord oh the my man God. was a stallion I, i'm jimmy stewart Seriously. so so margaret Sullivan's totally ready to hear henry fonda i mean see that's the thing like she's looking for the henry fondas of the world and you're actually telling me she's like in love with jimmy stewart these are very different men well the personality is what counts i just said they're very different men they're just very different types of men for sure. I had a good one here. In the book, uh, Ernst Lubitsch, Laughter in Paradise, Ernst Lubitsch uh, called this film the best picture I ever made in my life. And this oh. is a guy who made a ton of movies. Uh, yeah, this one is the one that he regarded as his favorite or the best anyway, even if it wasn't his favorite. So, Mike, I know that this has been replicated in a million different ways right like you've already given the source material for the plot right Mm -hmm. but then it was remade and adapted into so many different things including the first musical adaptation was in the good old summertime in 1949 which starred judy garland and van johnson in 1963, a second musical adaptation, She Loves Me, premiered on Broadway. Uh, its first production, which starred Daniel Massey as George Nowak and Barbara Cook, was a criti- critical success, but a box office disappointment. Oh, well, then in 93, there was a Broadway revival starring Boyd Gaines and Judy Kuhn met the same fate, as did a third Broadway mounting in 2016. Laura Benanti, Zachary Levi, Shazam himself uh, (laughs) and Jane Krakowski. See, I wonder what's up with that. Like, like, hmm. okay. Uh, MGM planned a film version of She Loves Me, again, the musical, the second musical adaptation of this. Uh, It was designed to reunite Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke following 1964's Mary Poppins. Uh, It was ultimately scrapped and they never made it, but they did make a a third film version of this story. Which one was that, Caroline? You've got mail in 1998 with, of course, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. You got to give it the old bong bong. <laughs> you can't say you've got mail without doing the AOL connection noise. That's too funny. Yeah. I mean, I'm so curious about how, you know, this gets 100% Rotten Tomatoes rating. And then we just listed off all these adaptations that like didn't do great. 
you know, there was a lot of box office disappointment in these little adaptations and very curious if it's just that the dynamic doesn't stand the test of time or you got to You got to just tweak this a little bit as romance and the idea of, you know, how women and men treat each other changed over the years. I'm not sure there's something about this little nugget that I feel like it it does get a little lost in translation, if you will. Uh, that was a Bill Murray movie from 1999, I believe, Lost nice. in Translation. Uh, you know, I think I think a lot of it has to do with the characters. You need a Tom Hanks who is a modern day Jimmy Stewart. You mm-hmm. need a, a female lead that they have natural chemistry with. And Tom Hanks, I don't think, has any better on-screen chemistry ever than he has with Meg Ryan. They made three movies together, and a high point of all of them was their chemistry together. Yes. Um, and and the same here with Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan, you know, at least from the Jimmy Stewart angle anyway. <laughs> Am I selling that, that you can really see that he was head over heels well, for her? There's there's a softness at the end of the movie where it's building and he's he's kind of needling her and she's she's what's happening here. And then he puts the carnation, the boutonniere in his lapel. Yes. And that I did mean, make my heart like, of course, <laughs> of course. But if it's Brad Pitt that does that, it doesn't hit you the same. Right. Uh, Jimmy he's got to be a little boy next door. Yeah, he's got a, you know, there's a quote in here. Uh, Jimmy Stewart was at the top of Ernst Lubitsch's list to play the simple Alfred Kralik because the actor was, quote, the antithesis of the old time matinee idol. He holds his public by his very lack of a handsome face or suave manner. That's Tom Hanks. Tom yeah. Hanks is not a hot guy. He's a dad. He's he is a boy next door. He's someone you trust to drive your, your daughter. Friend. He's your best friend. You trust him to sell you insurance and drive your daughter home and it'll be okay. Jimmy Stewart was that in 1930 and 1940s. You know, yeah. I don't I, I don't know who that is in 2021, but it's not Brad Pitt. It's not George Clooney. Ooh, okay, now hold on. Like let's let's actually do this exercise. Who could play him now? Who could be that gentle and that but still be you know handsome in his own way still have his own charm in his own way i'm leaning into like kind of some of the kind of boyish something you know like a tom holland tom holland in like 10 years would be this okay maybe even if you tone down ryan reynolds a little bit you could get I mean, I don't know if he's too, because he's cute, but like if you tone down the muscles and you tone down whatever and just made him be like a very more just ordinary man body, I think that you could get him to that place. I, I, I agree with that because he's got the charm in spades. It, the the whatever keeps Blake Lively staying married to him. Oh, I've got him. Beyond his, you know, his, his muscles is that charm. I think that's actually a really good call. I got you. Ready? John Krasinski. Yes. That's who you need. Now, who's your girl? It might actually be Emily Blunt. (laughs) It could be an Emily Blunt. It could be a Jennifer Lawrence type. Uh, Anna Anna Taylor-Joy, is that her name? She's kind of like the new Jennifer Lawrence. I I mean, it's funny. I was just doing an FNL uh, Friday Night Lights rewatch. You know, very much not Amy Teagarden, but uh, Aminka Kelly. Okay, okay. Something like that, I think, would have worked, you know. Okay, I'm with you on that. Okay, so I think John, though. John is Jimmy. I think that's a really good, that's a really good call. Okay, so that's who it is. So if you guys are trying to think, like, John and Emily, I mean, they're married. They actually, they're, I mean, they're a real life couple doing it. That's why I'm, that's why I was leaning into them. And even... Going back to the fact that they tried to get Julie Andrews in it and then Emily Blunt played Mary Poppins. I feel like there's something there to that. You know, you could see the Dick Van Dyke, John Krasinski feel long and lanky. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think we've done good work here today. In, Thank uh, you. I really feel this. like we have to, done too. Are you ready to do some Jingle Bell ratings? Oh, I am. Okay. First, will you play me a little We Don't Know What It Is for next week? Uh, here it is. Next week's clip, it is very different than The Shepherd on the Corner. My girlfriend is here with her family. You guys have to help me. Please, just pretend for like another couple hours. We'll leave by midnight, all right? Please, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Oh, no, no, read paragraph three. You bailed. We're done. You write the check and you get out of here. What? No, wait a minute. I, okay, look, I want to go. I'm dying to go. I want to get out of here, but I got to have a life to go back to. This girl is that life. I can't really tell her that, you know, I rent a family. I'm sure she already knows you're crazy. It's kind of, uh, shows. No, a deal's a deal. That's it. Uh, unless you want to sweeten the pot a little bit. That's extortion, Tom! 
Well, you know, I think I hear the doorbell. No, 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 all right, no, no, no. I'll give you another 75 grand, okay? But you guys got to do it good, and you got to try, all right? Or else I'll just, I'll be so mad at you guys. Come on. I'm not wearing a hat. Bye. Oh, my God. I feel like you could do such an excellent impression of this guy. What? All that. <laughs> I feel like you can, you can hit it, like, dead on. Who is that? Uh, that is Ben Affleck. James, oh, uh, James Gandolfini, who I'm much more uh, physically equipped to do an impersonation <laughs> of, and Catherine O'Hara. Okay, but him in that scene, you could do all of that. I could do all of I would be of- so bad <laughs> at you guys. <laughs> yes, I hear that dead on. Okay, I have no idea what movie this is. None. 2004's Surviving Christmas, starring Ben Affleck, James Gandolfini, Catherine O'Hara. <sighs> yeah, they're the three big stars. Oh, and Christina Applegate. How duh? How could I forget that? Christina Applegate. Duh. I mean, they're they're a top four. Hey guys, you can go rent it on. It, it's free on Amazon Prime right now. If uh, if if you have Amazon Prime, you can go get it there. I'm sure you can rent it from any of the other streaming devices. Go check it out. We're gonna have some. Uh, we're gonna have something to say about this movie. So I'm excited about that. Okay, excellent, excellent, excellent. Okay, are you ready for Jingle Bell Ready? Yes, and I went first last time, so you go first this Certainly. time. Did okay, Mike. I am going to give this a three, and I know that sounds like what, but it just has nothing to do with Christmas. It just has nothing to do with Christmas, you guys. Uh, there were moments they could have tweaked to make it about Christmas. They could have made people have to pull together either to be there for Mr. M and have like a big Christmas Eve dinner since he didn't have any family, or they could have had to save the store. There could have been just something else to it to layer in Christmas, but they just didn't at all. I really enjoyed the secret admirer portion of it all um i do get the rom-com of it all and i and i do see that this is clearly the blueprint for all modern rom-coms to come but for our christmas list it just can't be anywhere near the top you've given me something to think i want to give it a four and i agree with you wholeheartedly i just really really enjoyed it so much it's getting it it's getting it's just not fair i know it's i'm giving well because here's the thing because here's the thing where's the christmas music where's the hope where's any of the of the giving or the bringing together of people come on we have criteria i know but <laughs> but liking the movie a lot has to count for something and so okay. so so here here's my thinking here here yes. I'm, I'm gonna give you my thinking because i've Let got the spread i've got the spreadsheet open <laughs> the spreadsheet has been opened like the chamber of secrets <laughs> oh my so i gave christmas in connecticut a 4.5 a movie that is also not about christmas but is tangentially maybe you know at least has christmas music in it I gave that a 4.5. It also had Christmas in the name. I mean, we, we've, we've proven that I don't think that that's necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a Christmas movie. Holiday Inn, I gave, we both gave a three. Holiday Inn, also a movie not about Christmas. It just happens to start and finish on Christmas or Christmas Eve. Much like this movie kind of ends on Christmas Eve. Uh, and we gave that a three. And I didn't really like that so much. I mean, I liked it, but not like I like this one. I like this movie a lot. I will rewatch this movie again. Uh, I really enjoyed this movie. So it's getting that point bump over a holiday in. Not because it's about Christmas, just because I liked it. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and I think it's an important movie to watch. Okay, I think that we are both suffering a little bit from the romance of the real life story behind it. I disagree because I was into this and I was into them before I even knew about that. I okay. was, I was like, I was a little I more. I believe halfway. you, but I just think that we. I'm just oh, okay. I'll only speak for myself. I am definitely somebody when I know there's like a behind the scenes story to the whole thing that that does affect my feel for the characters. And so in this particular case, I feel like their real life story was compelling enough for me to be like, I want to read into these characters more than I really think is actually in the script. Because it sounds like, I mean, gosh, you started off with this whole thing that Jimmy Stewart's real life wife was like saying basically he was like forlorn after after Margaret Sullivan died. I mean, there's something to that that just I feel that in oh. these two characters, though, I'm picking up on that. I, I am. I'm picking up on that kind of passion and, and commitment from these two and this chemistry from these two. I, I was feeling it from 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 jump. So 
yeah, I, I got a dose of like, I was not surprised at all when I read that. I felt it in the movie. Good on you. I'm super glad that you found your, what, what do we want to call it? This is your red carnation movie. This is my red carnation movie. They were wearing a little red carnation on the cover for you. And you put on your carnation and you met them at the cafe. Congratulations. What a lovely story for you, too. I was Pirovich. <laughs> You're not Pirovich. You're Jimmy. I'm not. You're I'm in not, it. I'm not Jimmy. Uh, You're having I'll, a love affair with the movie. I'm Pirovich, trying to tell you. Uh, by the way, Pirovich has. Pir- I'm Pirovich. <laughs> Pirovich has a great line in this movie that we didn't get to talk. There's two things that we didn't get what? to talk about really, really quickly. When they're standing outside the cafe. Yes. And he's like, and he's he's telling uh, Cray like he's you know she she looks kind of like you know uh, Miss Novak. Of Clara. She has the coloring coloring of Clara. <laughs> she's a very pretty girl. You can't deny. Uh, she's fine. She's she's okay. Yeah. I I don't want to talk about her after the day I've had. Remember, he had just gotten fired. And he's like, well, you better get aboard with it because it is her. <laughs> you don't see me saying that. I see you totally being Jimmy. Of course, and and but Jimmy's like, oh. And then, but then Pirovich <laughs> says to her, Pirovich reminds him because oh then he starts God. hemming and hawing backtrack. And Pirovich says to him, oh, She's the one who wrote the letters, my friend. That's extremely yeah. important. And I think really cuts to Kralik's core. I think that that line. He he hears it, and I think he internalizes it. There was another. It's uh, it's not has any dialogue. I think it was just really good acting on Margaret Sullivan's uh, part. Is when he finds out who it is the next time she goes to mailbox two thirty seven, and we're on the post office side of the mailbox, and her hand, her gloved hand, kind of just feels yeah, around and pats. That was sad. It's so sad because it, it pats it and then it searches the walls for it. I'm doing the hand motion while I'm talking into the I, microphone. I can feel it. I feel and, it. And then, and, th- and then you see her like little face like sticking in, peering, but her hands have already told her. That was a, that's a great bit of acting right there. Two great moments. Yeah. So the the movie is for sure getting I really liked it bump. Nothing to do with Christmas, though. Nothing to do with Christmas. <laughs> well, we hope that you end up having a love affair like Mike is with this movie <laughs> and definitely watch it at Valentine's Day. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the 52 weeks of Christmas, which is not always about Christmas, as it turns out. If you could go to Apple Podcasts and rate, <laughs> review and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be fantastic. And while while you are there, friends, dear friend, dear friend, if you could throw on a red carnation, leave us a five star <laughs> rating. That would be fantastic, because if you don't, you know what? We all may be in the same room, but we're not from the same planet. Thanks for listening. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I, uh, I, 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 I can't thank you enough. I want to think I want to shake every one of your hands. I want to put a, a carnation boutonniere in your lapel. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Clara, get my pills, Clara. I'm coming. Oh my God, get your pills. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.